You know, one of the freest times for a, a preacher to get up and to preach is when the gospel has been proclaimed so clearly uh, in the previous moments that a congregation has spent together. And just already as I reflect on what we have prayed and what we have heard sung and the music and the reports and those of you that were in adult education, uh, that the gospel is alive. The gospel changes people. And that when we gather on a, a Sunday morning, it's not about a monologue. It's not about people up here speaking to people out there. But it is a dialogue between us as a congregation and our Creator, our King. Uh, and so it is a joy to be able to open God's Word to you this morning. Uh, I'm Camper Mundy, Associate Pastor here. And I also would like to extend a special welcome to those of you who may be visiting. Uh, we're glad to have you in our midst. And today we continue with a sermon series in Mark's Gospel entitled, The King Has Come. And we're actually nearing the end of that series. I've got about three more weeks in it. And in particular, this morning, we're going to look at one of Jesus' most difficult and offensive sayings. A sharp comment with a striking insult. In this passage that we're about to look at, we are confronted with a question. And that question is why? Why this offensive statement? Is Jesus a king of love? Or is he a king with an attitude? And our text this morning comes from Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. Now, you'll find it on page 843 if you're using the Pew Bible, uh, Mark chapter 7. Uh, let's take a moment to pray before we hear God's Word. Our gracious God, we thank You that You invite us to enter into conversation with You to dialogue with You, to hear from You, and to be changed by You. And so we ask once again, not in and of ourselves, but because of You and Your goodness and Your mercy, do it again. Do a work in our hearts and through our lives. Opening Your Word to us and us to Your Word, and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. And now hear the word of God from Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. And from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table... Eat the children's crumbs. And Jesus said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. 
And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. And this is God's word. Now, remember where we are in Mark's gospel. Don't lose sight of where the gospel writer Mark has taken and put this particular story in his account of Jesus's life in ministry. Think about it for a moment. So far, as we have seen Jesus, he has been in a predominantly Jewish region. And last week, we got to listen in on a conversation that Jesus had with some Pharisees and some other religious leaders who had uh, come from Jerusalem. They had come to, to check him out. They had come to, to see what kind of heresy he was speaking. And they came to rebuke him. But do you remember, in turn, it was actually Jesus that rebuked them. Do you remember what he said? Well, here's part of it. First part of chapter 7, uh, picking up with verse 6. And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then a little bit later, we got to overhear a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. He had just spoken to a a crowd of people, and then he and his disciples retired to a, a house, and they said, Jesus, can, can you explain what you just said? Can you explain that to us? And so this is what Jesus said to him, verse 18. And Jesus said, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus explains that the heart of the matter is the heart. It's the heart that matters. It is not doing the right things that makes us clean. But it is a changed, a transformed heart that makes us clean. Now, having just declared all foods and implicitly all things to be clean, Jesus now leaves this Jewish region and goes to a Gentile region, apparently to get some rest. Verse 24 says that Jesus goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, this was probably the most extreme expression of paganism known to any Jew in that day. And so Mark has just set up quite a contrast for us. A contrast in light of the the previous passage where Jesus dealt with the ceremonially clean religious leaders and now is entering the disgustingly unclean land of Gentile pagans. And so that is the setting for our story this morning. And so as we walk through this story together to help us better hear God's word, I want us to consider the passage in three parts. An outcast, an insult, and an affirmation. An outcast, an insult, and an affirmation. So first, an outcast. Verses 25 and 26. And let me reread those for us. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of Jesus and came and fell down at his feet. 
Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. Three strikes and you're out. Isn't that how the old ball game is played? Three strikes? Well, here we have four. Four strikes. Four strikes within the context of a first century Middle Eastern culture. First off, this is a woman. This Second, this is a woman who is a Gentile. Third, this is a woman who is a Gentile from an extremely pagan region and race. And then fourth, one who comes not on behalf of a son, but of a daughter. Now, this combination was seen as being well beneath the dignity of any true rabbi. As one commentator puts it, of all the people who approach Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, this individual has the most against her from a Jewish perspective. Verse 26 reads like a crescendo of demerit. This woman can claim none of the credits that a good Jew might bring to the prophet of Nazareth. Her only cover letter is her desperate need. And not only would the Jewish religious leaders be disgusted by someone like this, but Jesus' disciples weren't comfortable with her either. Verse 26 says that she begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. She begged him. Uh, in the original language, more literally, she kept begging or she kept asking. It's a, it's a continuous action because what is happening is this woman is before Jesus asking over and over and over and over. Now, we don't get as clear a picture of it here in Mark, but in Matthew's account of this story, Jesus' disciples, it is very clear that they don't like this situation. The woman is beginning to get on their nerves. And so they say to Jesus, send her away, for she is crying out after us. They are uncomfortable. They are bothered. And so they say, Jesus, get her out of here. Send her away. And I wonder, maybe their judgmental hearts remembered another Gentile pagan woman from this region. The wicked Jezebel who had once introduced demon worship to ancient Israel. And I wonder if their judgmental hearts thought about this woman. Disgusting. Serves her right. She got what was coming to her. Demon-possessed daughter. What else would you expect? And sadly enough, it's not just Jesus' disciples of that day, but also those of us who are followers of Jesus today. Don't we often do the same thing? Too often we treat the outsider as an outcast. We're judgmental of those who are different or who lack something we don't have or maybe they possess or do something that we disapprove of. And this, this morning in adult ed, you, you heard about cross-cultural relating. And sometimes the assumptions that we bring into a situation are arrogant and demeaning. You know, in fact, just this week, as, as I was praying and reading through this passage, the Lord stopped me in my tracks and convicted me of someone that I was treating in my heart as an outsider, as an outcast. It's so easy to do when our hearts are not washed in the gospel. 
when they are not daily cleansed by word and prayer and a posture of faith and repentance. Because when we are not bathed in God's word, when we are not sitting in the truth of the gospel, our hearts suffer the hardening of their spiritual arteries and we lose sight of all that is real and all that is true. And it's interesting, often the way that we think about other people or even the way that we treat other people, that often reflects the way that we believe God treats us. So how does God treat us? How does God treat the woman in this story? And that leads to our next point, an insult. An insult, verses 27 and 28. Verse 27. And Jesus said to the woman, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. It is not right... To take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What in the world? You know, I don't know of anyone that's ever had this as their memory verse. (laughs) Is is this the same welcoming hearted Jesus that we have been seeing throughout the gospel of Mark? How, How did this slip in here? Jesus' statement to this Gentile pagan woman is startling. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, a few things to notice about this. In this abrupt statement, Jesus refers to his fellow Jews as the children. The bread is his message about the kingdom of God, which we've been hearing about uh, throughout the gospel. And the dogs refer to Gentiles. And here, specifically, to the woman. One commentator states, The reference to the woman as a dog ranks among the most offensive sayings of Jesus. So what are we to make of this? Well, first, I need to ask you a question. Okay, this is time for audience participation. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to come up here. I'm not going to put anybody on the spot. If you have a dog or have ever had a dog... Please raise your hand. This is church. Be honest. Okay, good. Well, the majority of you. Uh, okay, we, we live in a very dog-friendly, very dog-loving society. Dogs are great. Man's best friend. And so certainly it would be an overstatement to say that dog was a completely derogatory expression in the ancient world. However, brace yourself, dog lovers. Dick and Eve... Hang in there. However, almost every Old Testament reference to dogs shows the loathing that devout Israelites felt toward them. Dogs were seen as unclean. They ate garbage. They ate dead animals. So we move to the New Testament. You think it would get better. It doesn't. Jesus says not to entrust that which is sacred to dogs. He describes human misery in terms of dogs licking beggars' sores. Yeah, ooh. 
Uh, Paul speaks of his opponents as being dogs and evildoers. Using the expression dog in reference to someone was a statement of contempt toward a person judged worthless and expendable. Even in the rabbinic, the broader rabbinic tradition, uh, those writings that we have from early Jewish religious leaders, dog was a term of reproach in reference to, and I quote, the most despicable, insolent, and miserable of people. It was with this level of contempt that Jews applied this insult to Gentiles during that day. Are you beginning to feel the weight of this? You know, possibly the closest that we can, we can get in 21st century America to feeling the weight of this is to think of the offensive force behind referring to a woman as a female dog. And I'll let you fill in the blank. Verse 27, Jesus says to the woman, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So, is Jesus speaking a direct insult at this woman? Is that what he is doing? Cutting her down, calling her worthless and expendable. Is that what Jesus is doing? No. No, he is speaking a short parable to her. Did you realize that? This one verse is a parable. I think it's probably the shortest parable of of all of Jesus' teachings. It's a life metaphor. Now, how do we know that Jesus doesn't think of this woman as a dog? If he did, he would not be speaking to her in the first place. He wouldn't even be acknowledging her. Now, very important to this parable is the distinction that we've already made between Jew and Gentile. Jews saw themselves as children of God, and in their thought world, no one else had access to God's family. Everyone else was a dog. And so the issue at stake in this brief interchange is whether or not Gentiles, too, have access to God. Now, upon the woman's initial request, Jesus leaves the door open to that possibility. Did you notice he uses the word first? First, it's an invitation. Let the children be fed first. Let the Jews be fed first. And then, and then what? Yes. Many of you know your Bibles well enough. You know that Jesus came first to the nation of Israel. But not, as was Jewish thought, not to the exclusion of non-Jewish people. And that is good news. That is good news for us. That is good news for the nations. Based on our ethnicity, our race... Based on so many other barriers, we are not blackballed from the fraternity of faith. We are not blackballed from God's family. That is good news, friends. In verse 28, the woman shows that she understands this. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She doesn't get defensive. 
She accepts her humble position. She insists that God's mercy and grace are so abundant that there's more than enough blessing to feed all the people. And here's where the stark contrast with the previous section picks back up. There's a big difference, a huge difference between this woman's approach to receiving God's blessing and that of the Jewish religious leaders in the previous section whose hearts were far from God. This woman knows her lack of credentials. She knows her lack of heritage. She knows her desperate need, her unworthiness. And so she does not come to Jesus on the basis of her goodness. She comes to Jesus on the basis of His goodness. She comes to Jesus on the basis of His goodness. When you come to Jesus, when you come before God, whose goodness are you standing on? You know, this reminds me of King David. He wrote in Psalm 69, Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. David is crying out to God, but not based on his goodness. If you know the story of David, he clearly breaks every single one of the Ten Commandments. And yet he's referred to as a God, as, as a man after God's own heart. Because he comes on the basis of your steadfast love, O Lord, on your goodness, according to your abundant mercy, turn to me. The woman asks for what she doesn't deserve based on the goodness of Jesus. And she receives God's blessing. Well, that leads to our, our final point. An affirmation. An affirmation here, verses 29 and 30. Verse 29. And Jesus said to the woman... For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. For this statement, you may go your way. This statement. Now, is she being affirmed because of her quick wit? Because she has figured out how this Jesus guy works and has figured out, I know the right things to say to gain favor with God? No, too shallow of an interpretation. And not acknowledging the dignity of this woman. For this statement, you may go your way. What is being affirmed here? It is her faith. It is her faith. Interestingly enough, the word faith is not even mentioned in this account of the story. Now, Matthew's account mentions it. And it seems like the, uh, trans the editors of our English translations agree as well, since uh, just about all of them I could find list uh, the heading as the Syrophoenician woman's faith. But why her faith? Because it is that which is springing from her heart in response to God's Word. 
That which is springing from her heart in response to Jesus' parable. Do you see what's happening? The woman speaks to Jesus from within the parable. She doesn't step outside and distance herself from God. She steps into the story and responds from that place. She speaks His language. The language that Jesus speaks to her, she speaks back to Jesus. The language of God's kingdom. The language of the gospel. In the words of theologian James Edwards, this believing woman submits her calls entirely to Jesus and she is not disappointed. For such a reply you may go, says Jesus, the demon has left your daughter. What irony! Jesus seeks desperately to teach his chosen male disciples, yet they are dull and uncomprehending. But after just one sentence, this pagan woman understands Jesus' mission. How? How is this possible? The answer is this. Listen closely. The answer is that the woman is the first person, the first person in Mark to hear and understand a parable of Jesus. The brief parable of the children and dogs at the table has disclosed to her the mystery of the kingdom of God. And here's the kicker. She does what Jesus commands of those who would receive the kingdom and experience the word of God. She enters the parable and allows herself to be claimed by it. She enters the parable and allows herself to be claimed by it. You see, if we are to truly live by faith, if we are to truly live out the gospel that we are called into, we too, you and me, we must enter into the parable. We too must be consumed and transformed by God's Word. Dogs? Yes. Children? Yes. It's the very thing we remember every week when we have our confession of sin and assurance of pardon. Speaking the truth about ourselves and the truth about God and what He then says of us and speaks into us. Now, have you entered into the parable? Or have you kept a safe distance, listening, some interesting facts? Or have you really entered into God's Word, beginning to allow it to consume you? Well, to enter the parable, we must look into the mirror. We must look into the mirror of God's Word. Now, we spoke about this gospel key a year ago, and it's worth repeating. You remember we were in the gospel according to James. And James likens God's word, the Bible, to a mirror. James exhorts, and I believe Eve referred to this this morning, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Be doers and not hearers only. But first we do hear. First we do hear the word of God. First we do see into the pages of scripture. And then out of that we do. As we look into the pages of Scripture, what we see is this. We see that God's Word shows us who we are.
before it ever tells us what to do. This is not merely a book of rules that if you get right, God will have favor favor with you. No. God's word shows you who you are before it ever tells you what to do. Knowing this is central to understanding the Bible. Knowing this is central to living out the gospel. The Christian life is about a heart change that gets expressed through faith. Just like this woman. And like this woman, when you look into the mirror of God's word, you'll see two things. As one pastor puts it, you'll see that you are radically fallen due to sin. And you'll see that you are infinitely exalted through faith in Jesus Christ. Radically fallen, infinitely exalted. On the one hand, you see that you are messed up just like everybody else. We are all in the same sinking boat. You need a Savior. The person next to you needs a Savior. As the saying goes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You are radically fallen and thus in radical need of Jesus. On the other hand, you see that you are valued just like everyone else. Everybody has worth and dignity created in the image of God, bestowed upon them when God spoke you into existence. Christ died for you. Christ died for the person next to you. And through faith, through faith in Jesus, you are infinitely exalted in Him. So as we look into the mirror of God's Word, as as we come here this morning to Mark 7, on the one hand we see that we are despicable dogs... Worthless outcasts, no credentials, nothing on which to stand, period. We don't stand on our accomplishments because they are rubbish. We don't stand on our acquisitions because they are worthless idols. Of course, we don't stand on appearances because they are merely that, just appearances. But on the other hand, We see that we are beloved children by God. Beloved children that God would come after, would pursue in Jesus, would enter into dialogue with us when no one else would. The God who welcomes us into His family through faith in His Son. Now, do you you hear how radical this is? The gospel changes everything. The gospel changes the way that we relate to God. The gospel changes the way that we relate to to one another within the family of faith. The gospel changes the way that we relate to those outside of the family of faith. Think about it for a moment. The way that we relate to God. The gospel empowers us to come to God in prayer just like this woman. In both humility and confidence. In humility and boldness. A, a, she reminds me of the persistent widow 
It's this this humble contentiousness. Because you can go and you can claim the goodness of the gospel based on His goodness. Just like this woman, just like Jacob, you can go to God and you can wrestle with Him and say, I will not let go until you bless me. Now, we don't always know what that blessing looks like. We don't. But He always does. We think we know what we need, but He always knows what we need. And He provides it for us. So radically changes the way that we go into the throne room of the King. Humility and confidence, boldness together. Now the gospel changes the way that we relate to others within the family of faith. I'm no better than you, you're no better than me. Now we we try to position ourselves in such a way, and that's where we need each other, for faith and repentance. We can encourage one another, we can receive encouragement. We forgive one another, and we receive forgiveness. We learn to live within the rhythms of grace because that is the way that God's posture is toward us. And the gospel changes the way that we relate to people outside of the family of faith, the outsiders. Do we treat them as outcasts? And Dold Ed, this this morning we we considered cross-cultural mission to the Cherokee Nation. The Jesters talked to us about the challenges of that. And then the Turners came and shared with us about going to a mercy conference. And for the last several weeks, week in and week out, we have been considering in adult ed mercy and justice issues. And the gospel allows us to see people as they really are. Going to them, serving them, loving others. Not based on what we have, but based on what God has and has given to us and now gives through us. Others are in need of mercy, just as we are. We are able to cross all kinds of barriers. All kinds of barriers. As I was recently exhorted... I now exhort you, be like this woman. Be like this woman. Don't be too proud to accept what the gospel says about your unworthiness. And don't be too despondent to accept what the gospel says about how loved you are. Be affirmed on the basis of the goodness of Jesus. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now enter the story. Do you hear that good news? On the cross, the ultimate child of God became a dog so that we dogs could become children of God. Enter the parable. Enter God's Word. Allow it to transform you. The King has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe and live out of the good news. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.
gracious God, oh, wow, we, we come to you this day both in our brokenness and our need and humbled and confessing all the false ways that we try to get standing and grasp for glory. And Lord, we also come to you recognizing that in Jesus you have bestowed on us glory beyond our wildest dreams. That you love us, that you are passionate about us. And so we ask that you, that you would help us with humble confidence to enter into your word, to trust the work of your spirit in us, that we might be changed and that we might be a part of your changing the world. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.